say God helps those who help themselves? It sort of sounds biblical, kind of, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound like something might be in the Proverbs or something? Yeah. How about, how about does the Bible teach that there's an age of accountability? How many of you grew up with that idea, the age of accountability? Yeah, I'm going to ixnay on that one real hard. Um, how many of you heard a loving God would never send anyone to hell? I'm going to extend on that one too. Um, the court be with you. <laughs> Always. <laughs> We're going to start with my favorite of all of these. Because this one is a lie from the pit of hell. And every time I hear somebody say it, I want to scream loudly and just, I don't know, be naughty. How many of us, when some struggle comes along or some trial comes along, have heard something or had somebody say to us, God forbid, I hope you didn't say this, but maybe you did, that's okay, then we're going to gently correct you this morning in all of our gracious <laughs> God won't give you more than you can handle. How many of you have heard that? You've all heard Right? Or the backhanded compliment version of this is, you must be strong because God gives the hardest trials to the strongest people. Yeah, the Apostle Paul wrote a word that. The essence of this is the idea that even though we're, we're struggling or suffering or in the midst of some sort of trial, that clearly God would not allow our struggle to be more overwhelming than our present capacity to deal with that trial. It's sort of, I think, a way of saying, you got this, you can handle this, you're going to be fine. And I think people say this sort of thing for, for one or more of these reasons. First of all, I think in the good intention side, they want us to feel better in our suffering, and they think this is an encouragement. Well, that would never be more than you can handle. So walk up a little <laughs> the, second, the second thing is people are very uncomfortable when other people are suffering or hurt or going through a struggle. People are really uncomfortable with that. In fact, it is one of one of the things you have to deal with if you ever want to be in ministry is you have to decide that you're going to be okay with other people's struggles without taking them on yourself. You can empathize, but you can't make it your problem, or you will not survive. But see, it's kind of a way for us to make ourselves feel better by thinking we're being supportive, and thinking, well, they can handle it. They don't really need me to help them, because God's God. God would never give them more than they can handle, so they don't really need me to help them. We're okay. And the other thing I think is it just it sounds true, and I think a lot of people believe this, but I'm going to tell you straight up, it's not the Bible. In fact, I'm going to argue this morning, the Bible teaches the opposite of this. Now, the origin of this idea, as far as anyone that I've read can discern, comes from a misunderstanding of Paul writing about not falling into sin 
as the Israelites often did in the wilderness. In 1 Corinthians 10, he lists out all these things the Israelites did in the wilderness that are given as examples of what not to do. And then he comes to verse 13 in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and it says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Now, that's a great, great verse, and there's some great truths there. Temptations are normal and common. Right? It's not a sin to be tempted. Temptations are normal. No one's getting any extraordinary weird temptations. Whatever tempts you, that, that's okay. That's normal. And God does not allow temptations that are beyond our ability to get out of or to resist. And he does that by making sure there's a way of escape. So in other words... Okay, if I walk into the kitchen and there's a plate of chocolate chip cookies, you know what? I can walk out of the kitchen. My legs work well enough that I can walk out of the kitchen and not eat the chocolate chip cookie. If I walk into Hy-Vee and they're selling the chocolate chip cookies right there as I walk through the door, which they are quite often, I can just keep walking right into the produce section. And I, I am a fully adult person capable of resisting that temptation, walking past those chocolate chip cookies, and going buying myself a bunch of bananas. Big boy, I can do it. But the thing is, all of this in context is specific to temptations to sin. It has nothing to do with trials or suffering or anything about like that outside of the very narrow issue of when you are tempted to sin. It doesn't speak to suffering that is caused when we do sin. It doesn't speak to suffering other people bring in our lives, any of that, none of that. So God, we can tell from this verse, will not allow temptations to sin in our lives that there's not a way to resist. We can always choose not to sin. We can always find the way of escape. We don't have to lie. We don't have to lust. We don't have to covet. We don't have to be unrighteously angry or whatever particular sins tempt us the most. We can tell the truth even when it hurts. We can... Instead of lusting, look away. Or we can run away like Joseph did when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him. Were there consequences to his avoiding the temptations to sin? Yes, there were. But he still had an option to not sin, which he took. We can choose self-control, since if you have put your faith and trust in Christ, the Spirit of God lives in you, and part of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. We can exhibit self-control. We are not animals. We are not raccoons when I forget to close the garbage. They cannot resist. We can. So the idea of God not giving us more than we can handle clearly only applies 
to sinful temptations. And even then, we have to take some responsibility and action to resist or escape. That's the first error in the second. Passage that people think might teach this is not useful. There's other errors in this idea. See, the Bible actually teaches the opposite. My first case in point is going to be Elijah. Let's think about Elijah. I mean, here, if there ever was a guy who got to experience God's power, and we would be like, think, man, that dude's like a superhero for the Lord. Probably got to be Elijah. I mean, he's a miracle-working, evil prophet-slaying, spirit-filled, powerful guy. Calls down, excuse me, he calls down fire from heaven. Have you ever called down fire from heaven? I'm lucky when I can get the fire to light when we're camping. Elijah calls down fire from heaven. When he prays to God and asks God to answer by fire, there's no doubt in his mind that it's going to happen, and it does in a big way. And after all that happens in Mount Carmel, he fights the prophets of Baal, right, and fire from heaven, not only you know, consumes the sacrifice and all the water and everything else and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, they take up, slay the prophets of Baal and all this kind of stuff. You would think, you would think this dude would be on, like, a speaking tour of Israel, like, the Lord. Yeah. No, look what happens. First Kings 19, verses 1 through 4. Now Ahab told Jezebel, Ahab the king, Jezebel's his evil wife, everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, how'd you like to have been that messenger? <laughs> when Jezebel says, hey, I want you to go tell Elijah that I'm going to kill Messenger Father, wait a minute, fire from heaven. May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. And Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. And he came to a broom tree, sat under it, and prayed that he might die. Does that sound like a guy who's having like a really great day? Because he just had a really great day. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Talk about your major depressive episode. He wants to die. He's had enough. I mean, he just called on fire from heaven in the presence of Israel's leaders and the people. And yet, hey, Jezebel sends this nasty message to him. And he knows, you know, that they're still in charge of Israel and that they're very bad people. And he just felt defeated to the point of death. Does that sound like God won't give you more than you can handle? Guys, literally praying to God to die. What about David? How many times does he write in the Psalms about how much despair he finds himself in? If you don't believe me, when you go home today, go and read Psalm 69. Dude is having a bad, bad day. And even our Lord, in the Garden of Gethsemane, does he not despair? Is he not there praying? Does he not say to the Father, 
let this cup pass from me? Does he not have so much despair and so much agony that he sweats drops of blood? As he realizes what's about to come. All of these very strong people suffer deep despair well beyond their ability to handle themselves. But I think the definitive passage that tells us clearly that God will most definitely allow things into our lives that are beyond our strength is Paul describing his time in Asia Minor through the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at verses 8 in the first part of verse 9. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. Notice what Paul is saying there. Beyond our strength. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength. We despaired of life. We felt like we'd been given a death sentence. We were sure the gig was up and it was over. It was more than we could handle. They were well, well past the buck up little camper stage. They were definitely past thoughts and prayers. And they were not going to live, laugh, and love. They despaired of life. They thought they were dead. They were out of strength and had given themselves up to death. So here's our first application. If Elijah, David, and Paul, and our Lord Jesus himself, have experienced trials and struggles that brought them to the point of despair, so massive that they literally despaired of life itself, then that is for us a very real possibility. We should not be surprised. And we should not be too quick to judge others in their struggles. Because maybe our time just hasn't hit yet. We should definitely not think struggling or having trials or that level of despair indicates anything about our spiritual maturity or our walk with Jesus. Because if you think you're more spiritual than the Apostle Paul, you and I probably need to sit down and talk in my office. And I will point out the flow of ways how you are not, and teen how I'm not. So that together, we can really know the Apostle Paul. Doesn't say anything about your spiritual walk or about your walk with Jesus. Unless, of course, that struggle that you're going through, you caused yourself with your own sin. That's another subject. We'll get to that in a second. And even, even if you see somebody whose own struggle is caused by their own sin, because we're going to sin, and maybe your struggle is caused by your own sin, listen to what Paul says to the Galatians about that. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should just beat them up about it and just constantly let them have it. Oh, I got that wrong. You should restore him in a spirit of what? Gentleness. And keep watching yourself, lest you too be tempted. 
Don't remember if it comes to you my way. There's a way to be able. Bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. Okay, so even if somebody struggles or talks about their own sin, help them out with the spirit of gentleness. Not one of the condemnation and aggravation. So that all takes us to another error of this idea that God will never give us more than we can handle, and that is it misunderstands the origin of suffering. That somehow God is causing your suffering. So, first off, we need to be clear when we talk about what causes suffering. That suffering, pain, trials, all that sin, they were not part of the original plan. Remember, God finishes the creation, and what does he say? It's very good, right? The word he uses there, told, has the idea, not just not very good, like, it was a nice place with really cold water and man and pomegranates were tasty. But that everything was at peace and had wholeness and was complete. Everything was exactly as God intended. And we know what happened to that. Mankind's sin messed all that up. And sin, therefore, is the ultimate, the first cause of suffering of all time. And sin is the cause of suffering in three ways. First of all, there's our own sin, like our actual sins that we commit. Sometimes we sin, and we cause our own suffering. So if I go out tonight, and I go downtown, and I go to Harry's Five and Dime, and I have three beers, not one like apparently, and I get, I don't drink craft beers anymore. Um, and then I get to my car, my little red convertible after having three beers at Harry's, and I drive home, and on my way home, one of Cedar Falls' finest pulls me over and says, Sir, you were weaving around the road back there. And I look at him and say, Officer, that's impossible. <laughs> and I go to jail. And that jail is then followed by fines and court costs and alcohol counseling and all sorts of things that happen when you get nailed for drunk driving. Well, let's just say, in the words of the old Led Zeppelin song, it's nobody's fault but mine. If I act out in anger and there are repercussions, once again, my bad. If I suffer from my own bad choices, that is on me, not on God. But I certainly can't blame God if I don't sin. Secondly, other people sin. This is where we suffer because someone else does something against us. Now, maybe it's intentional, right? Okay, they intentionally single me out and sin against me. Or maybe they're the one that had the three beers. And they're driving, and it wasn't their intention to crash into my car and hurt me, but the results of their actions are that they crashed into my car and hurt me. But whatever they did, their words or their actions or whatever, that causes us pain and suffering. Okay, so that is also a source of pain and suffering, but not on God, that's on other people. Third thing, third way sin causes our pain and suffering is the sinful state of the world. Sin is not just a moral problem of people making bad choices. But Romans 8 tells us that everything is corrupted by sin. 
everything that we try to All creation, it says, groans out for redemption. Not just people, but everything in creation. That means the agency of sin in the world could be the cause of our suffering in so many ways. So my dad died of cancer. Now, I don't think he did anything that caused that cancer. I am sure that no one else caused that cancer. I mean, it's not like they have a cancer rate. At least not that I'm 100% sure God did not cause that cancer. And God didn't look down at my dad and go, ah, dude, get pretty old. I think I should zap him with cancer. But he developed cancer nonetheless. You know why? Because sickness is a result of sin in the world. God did not create sickness. Sin did. People die in natural disasters. Did God cause that? No. Part of the creation being corrupted. No one has to cause them. They're just the result of the creation is messed up because there's sin in the world. <clears throat> but the important point about all these things related to sin, having caused suffering and trials and all this, is that God did not cause our suffering. And this idea that God is not going to give you more than you can handle or give the greatest trials to the people that you come for. Teaches people this idea that God is up in heaven handing out trials to people just for fun. Or just to test you, just to see. God doesn't do that very often. Think about how many times that actually happened. You test Abraham. And even then, what does he do? He rests in the end. Right? Now maybe you're thinking, and you're saying, okay, now wait, Pastor, I'm, I'm for the most part with it. But what about some of those judgment things in the Old Testament? For example, there's that little story in 2 Kings 19, right? And Syria attacks Israel. And God sends this angel to the Assyrian army. Just one. Just one angel. And then one night, one angel kills 185,000 Assyrians. Now the first lesson in there is do not mess with God's angels. Because if it only takes one of them to wipe out 185,000 Assyrians, I don't think I want to find out what a whole army of them showing up does. And you say to yourself, well, you know, when God judged those people and he killed those Assyrians, their families suffered. God caused their families to suffer. I mean, <clears throat> don't you think a lot of those guys had kids, wives and kids back home? Back in Assyria? I bet they did. Bet you a lot of kids never saw daddy again. They suffered. Didn't God cause that suffering? Well, my argument is going to be no. Their sin caused that suffering. Because they attacked God's people on God's territory. And they came and they attacked Israel where they didn't need to be. And so their own sin caused it. See, people like to accuse God of all sorts of things from the Old Testament. But God's actions, when you read those things in context, are, are due punishment for the sins of those people who opposed him and his people. Just as an aside, a whole lot of those things, and we've heard me talk about this a little bit before, 
lot of those kinds of misunderstandings about God's actions, about judgment and that sort of thing, disappear when we understand that God's defining characteristic is his holiness. If we think everything's just about love, well, loving God this and loving God that and loving God. I'm not saying God is love. We just talked about that a few weeks ago. But if we think everything is defined just by love, it's much harder to understand God's workings, especially in the Old Testament, where he has these various judgments, and then he judges people who refuse to repent and repent and follow Jesus and that sort of thing. But when we understand holiness, things make a lot more sense. But that's for another sermon, so we're not going to go there. We're going to spend the rest of the time just talking about that. I'm not even going to get to all the things I wanted to talk about on this subject. When I hit six pages in my manuscript for this sermon, I had seven more points that I hadn't even started to flesh out. And you know what I did to those seven points? I took my little mouse and I highlighted all seven points and hit the delete key because we all want to go to lunch at some point. <laughs> so the second application is that all suffering is in some way connected to sin and needs to be understood in that light. It doesn't actually mean you sin, just it's connected to sin. Now it might mean you sin, but more often than not, it's just connected to the fact of sin in the world. God does not cause sin and suffering. He clearly allows it to happen, since it's within his power to stop it if he chooses. And sometimes he does, right? He miraculously intervenes occasionally. But he allows suffering. Why? This is probably the part of the sermon everybody was hoping to get to. Why would God allow suffering? We've accepted their suffering, and it's not often or usually our fault in the world or somebody sitting against us. Occasionally it's not wrong. Why would he allow all that? And I don't have any really hardcore definitive answers. But I think there's some things we need to consider when we talk about the purpose of suffering. And I think those purposes of suffering are based on what's causing our suffering in the first place. If the cause of uh, suffering is my sin, then when I suffer for my sin, Really, that's meant to be redemptive, not punitive. You know, I, I do remember, I'm, I am old enough to remember when George Jones and Tammy Wynette in 1975 sang a song, God's going to get you for that. Very few of you know what I'm talking about, so you need to go home and you need to Google that song. <laughs> because it's a George Jones classic. Sam, is that not a George Jones classic? Thank you. Some of y'all need to listen to some more George Jones. Um, anyway, that song, the song, as God. Okay. The truth is, Hebrews 12 tells us that God disciplines us at times. And when he does, it's meant for our good, so that we would become more like Jesus. It is not some kind of vengeance or some punishment that God like wants to just punish you. God is not sitting up in heaven. You know, we always make the joke, right? About, like, I'll say something, you know, and, and you know, I'll stand away because you, you don't want to lightly both and kill Delvin's with me. Right? Okay, that's Zeus. That's not God. All right? God's not sitting up in heaven waiting to strike you down. Like, just waiting for you to mess up so he can zap you. Right? No. No. I'm not doing that. 
And if you think about it, most of the discipline for our sin is actually baked into the process in the first place, right? If you are driving 95 in a school zone and lose your driver's license, the discipline is built into the punishment. God doesn't have to like miraculously act to discipline you in that case. The discipline is going to come when you get some ridiculous fine or lose your license for six months and have to go to driving school and who knows what else. You know, 95 in a school zone, you're probably going to jail. You're probably going to spend some nights and weekends down in the county jail, I'm betting, hanging out with Sheriff Tony, eating a bologna sandwich. God doesn't always need to directly intervene to discipline us because the consequence is very often the discipline. The discipline for most sin is built into the consequences for the sin, and it's meant to be corrective so that we will be more like Jesus. That's what I want. I want you to be more like Jesus. But what about when it's not my fault? What about when other people sin against me? What about if it's just, you know, sinful creation, that there's bad things that happen to good people sort of thing? What could be the purpose of God allowing that in our lives? Because certainly it's not going to discipline me because I didn't do anything wrong. Because of course from our perspective, it seems sort of cruel for a good God to allow us to suffer for things that aren't our fault if he could do something about it. And I'm going to give you two biblical reasons that both occur in that passage in 2 Corinthians where Paul and his company experienced in their very lives about why God might allow those things to happen. The first is that suffering can be very faith-building, if you let it. Look at what he says in the rest of verse 9, 2 Corinthians 1.9. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul is clear that their great desperation was allowed so they could learn to rely on God more and themselves less. Now I want you to just think about that for a second because you know sometimes we read the scriptures and we're like, oh, yeah, of course, that makes sense. Okay, I want you to think about who's writing this. Paul is writing this. Paul is writing this to the Corinthians. This letter is later in his ministry, okay? And Paul is saying that we, God allowed these things to happen because we needed to learn to trust him more. We needed to learn to rely on him more than we already were. Paul is writing that. That's not me writing that. But if I were writing that, you'd look at it and go, yeah, of course you need to learn to trust him more. That's Paul writing that. That's true for him. How much more for us? And this verse explains why God would actually allow things to come into our lives that are beyond our strength, that are way more than we can handle alone, because he wants us to learn to trust him more and rely on his strength and not our own. And when Paul is in despair, he is forced to rely on God's strength to get him through. And so God clearly allowed even this great apostle to experience things well beyond his ability to handle so that he had to rely more on Jesus. And you need to understand that, that trusting in God and our suffering doesn't mean God necessarily is going to deliver us from the suffering. It is at least as likely, or maybe more so, he will carry us 
through that suffering. Kind of what he did for Paul, he carries him through the suffering, doesn't just deliver it. Think about Daniel and those little lions. Right? Does God intervene and say, and stop the, oh, he can be throwing my buddy Daniel in the lion's den? So the lion's den. That's the night there. Right? 
He was estranged from his family because of their sin against him and selling him into slavery. But when he's able to confront his brothers at the end of the story, he tells them, what? God allowed all this so that many people could be saved, including them. All that suffering ended up with the purpose, not apparent until the end, that Joseph would become God's instrument for not only saving the Egyptians, but actually for saving the fledgling Israel and for them to become a great nation, just as promised to Abraham. Okay. The last thing we're going to be clear about. Our suffering can help us to learn to trust the Lord more. That's if we respond to it and don't become bitter. It may allow us to help other people someday, right? We can help other people who are suffering. I mean, who better to help the abused than someone who's been abused? That's what better help the one who's experienced loss than those who have already experienced loss. But the hard truth, the final truth, maybe the, you know, they say should end the sermon on a high note. I'm not so sure I'm doing that today. Is you may never know why. Think about the man in the Old Testament who probably suffers more than anyone in the Bible except for maybe Jesus. Because he does not have to have the whole sin of the world poured out on him. But other than Jesus, I don't think there's anybody that suffers more than Job. Dude is the Warren Buffett of his time, right? And he loses it all. He has a big family that he clearly loves, right? Kids, grandkids, blah, 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 all killed. He's a strong, hardworking man. He is reduced down to scraping the hustled sores of his body with a sharp piece of broken pottery. His wife, who don't forget has also lost everything. But she's not exactly encouraging either. And then, you know, when you're really suffering, everybody loves it when their, their friends show up when you're really suffering. Except Joe's friends come and basically try to tell him it's all his fault. Yeah, that helps. Thanks. So he cries out to God, and of course he asks the eternal question of those who suffer, right? Why? I've done nothing to deserve this. Why? Why am I suffering? I'm a good person. I treat people well, blah, blah, blah. I'm righteous. And of course we know it's because God knows Job's heart is righteous, and he is allowing Satan to test him so Satan can learn a lesson in this whole thing about how Job will not reject God for any reason. But Job doesn't know that. And eventually, after 38 chapters of suffering and his annoying friends with their long discourses of why it's all Job's fault, and Job's telling him, I don't think so. God shows up. God comes to answer Job. What? That's so cool. And God says to Job, well, you see, I needed to show Satan that people will follow me no matter what, even if they suffer, and, and that actually don't be super righteous, and I need to prove Satan when I was wrong. No. No, that is not what God says. God basically says, in the course of all the chapters, well, Job, you got to understand, I'm God, and I'm in charge, and you're not. And you have no idea about all the inner workings of the universe. And my purpose is not all that. And I'm God, you're not, and that just needs to be enough. 
Suffering is a fact. Let us all resolve before you, Lord, to trust you more and learn to rely on you more. For our sake, for our family's sake, for the sake of serving and loving you. 